When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Red Sox Beat Podcast presented by CLNS Media. That's your leading online video and audio provider for Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Chris Cotillo from MassLive.com. This is episode 222. It's June 25th, 2019. The Red Sox are right around the halfway point tonight. They will be playing the Chicago White Sox at Fenway Park. That's game number 81 of 162. So they'll be officially halfway done with a very long season. I get to spend that very long season uh, co-writing with Chris Smith from MassLive.com, my beat partner. He's on the show today. Chris, how's everything going? Good. How are you? I'm great. And uh, the Red Sox, after a walk-off win last night, Marco Hernandez hits an infield single in the hole to Tim Anderson. He he throws to first. Ball bounces out of Jose Abreu's glove. The Red Sox end up with a comeback win. It's their second comeback win in four days. Kind of the only two bright spots in the last four days because Saturday and Sunday were two of the worst losses of the year against Toronto. So this team is kind of doing the thing it's done all year, Chris. They're going sideways. Um one step forward, two steps backward, that kind of thing. After a really good road trip you were there for, and then uh, a good comeback win Friday night, it seems like we're back to this inconsistent sideways Red Sox that we've really gotten used to through, I guess, 80 games of the season. Yeah, I mean, I wrote about it when they were heading to Minnesota. I was like, you know, they when they went to Kansas City, you know, they played well, but they played well against, a, you know, a bad team. And then they, you know, come home. And, you know, they start off that um, homestand, what, one in five or something like that. And so, you know, everybody kind of gets their hopes up. Oh, it's a good team. And then all of a sudden, you know, back to where it was. You know, if you want to say sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. And then sometimes it's, you know, one step forward and two steps back. And then, like, you know, you go into Minnesota after that series in Baltimore and you're like, you know, they played well in Baltimore, but it's Baltimore. They're not good. And then they, you know, take two of three in, in, you know, versus the twins. So you're like, well, this is positive. This is two steps forward. And then they take, you know, two steps back, you know, losing a series against, you know, a team in Toronto that's 20 games under 500. Uh, and, And then also not looking good in the, you know, it's not like they lost because of a, you know, one freaky play or something like that. I mean, they looked dead over the weekend. And, um, you know, and Cora said, you know, we didn't show up. That's what his his words were. And then Bill Koch from the Problems Journal allowed him to take it back a little bit (laughs) at the end of the, he's like, what do you mean by that or something? And and then Cora was like, you know, well, I didn't mean, you know, we didn't try and stuff. But I think he was calling out the team at first. Uh, And I think that's the opinion of, of several people. 
Yeah, no, I mean it, it was a it was kind of a a dead loss. I think there's there's been a lot of interesting kind of things that have gone on over the last week. Um, one thing that really was was talked about, and and we both wrote about Saturday night when the bullpen blew that you know six nothing and then six one lead to Toronto in that loss, which I think was one of the why I wrote was one of the worst losses in recent memory, was kind of the overuse of the bullpen. You know, Matt Barnes pitching twelve times in twenty two days. Ryan Brazier, he obviously had a week off due to the bereavement leave, but when he's been on the roster, he's been pitching, you know, half the games that he's been eligible for. Brandon Workman's been pitching a lot. Um, Heath Embry's on the injured list right now, but he was kind of in that same boat. Marcus Walden's pitched a lot too. So those guys, you know, we've talked about, uh, those are the four main relievers. This team doesn't have a lot of depth in the bullpen. Some guys, Taylor and Schwarren, have pitched better. But um, do you think this overuse, you know, that we wrote about is going to be, an issue down the stretch for these guys are showing signs of cracks now. And, and, you know, you're having Barnes and Brazier who are your two known quantities, the two guys that, all right, the rest of the bullpen will figure out, but we know Barnes and Brazier heading into the season. Those guys combined to walk four straight guys with the bases loaded. Um, there are four straight guys with two outs the other day and, and basically caused that loss. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's concerning. I, I was asking, um, you know, core last year, you know, mid season about Barnes workload, because I was like, you know, you look at his August, he has the most, uh, you know, the highest CRA of his careers per, you know, month is August. And he tends to, um, you know, he tends to, you know, uh, run out of gas uh, when it gets to August. September hasn't been his greatest month either. And so, um, and, you know, his, his ERA in the second half is significantly higher, if you look at it, than his ERA in the first half in his career. And so uh, this is a guy that, you know, tends to slow down as the year goes on, tends to break down a little bit. I think last year they did a good job in, in reducing his workload uh, late in the season just so that he'd be ready for the playoffs. But, you know, you can't really do that this year because you're fighting for a wild card spot. And so they need another bullpen arm. But, I mean, do you, you know, the big question is, and, you know, and, and Barnes is well over his, you know, he's on pace for a lot more, you know, appearances than last year. I think it's like eight or nine or something like that. And, yep. you know, so you're not reducing his, his workload. Um, you're making it more difficult. And then you got to think, well, they need another bullpen arm, uh, you know, especially to help this closure of committee thing work. Uh, it doesn't have necessarily have to be a closer. It just has to be a reliever that's, you know, it can slot into that mix of the top four. But you look at it, and is this team worth, you know, trading a prospect for a reliever? Because, you know, they haven't really gone anywhere this year. They've gone sideways, as you said. And so maybe you want to hold on to everything or, you know, and not trade any prospects. I don't know if they're going to sell if, if it doesn't look good at the trade deadline because, uh, you know, you only have to be a 500 team to make the postseason with the second wild card. Um, but you've got to also think about if you don't sell, just don't improve at all because the team hasn't showed you anything that they deserve to, uh, to you know, to get somebody or to, to trade for somebody yeah. and lose no, a prospect. Right. And and Chris Smith is the keeper of the prospects, unlike anybody else. So he was very upset when Ty Butchery went to the Angels for Ian Kinsler. He ended up being right about that one for once. So he had his well, one. Well, I was right about Sean Anderson, too, for, yeah. for 
Ed, that was know, way that before was, my time, Smith. And that was Eduardo Nunez, but like you know, and Eduardo Nunez helped them quite a bit for the second yeah. half of that year. So it's not like it was a it was a bust trade, but mm-hmm. the Butcher t- trade was a bust. And when you continue to do those, you're and I mean, it's surprising that they just didn't evaluate Butchery and some of these other guys as you know being potential major leaguers. And so you know, if you continue to trade guys for relievers at the deadline, you're gonna you know, it's kind of, con- or if you, you know, in that case, it was Sir Kinsler who didn't perform. But anyway, I mean, it's going to come back to burn you. So if, if you don't think the team is, you know, good enough, uh, you know, with the addition of another reliever, then, you know, don't sell, don't, don't, but just don't buy. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. I'm going to get to the deadline strategy a little bit later because we're just about, you know, five weeks before July 31st, which is the only trade deadline that's going to be kind of dominating the talk, at least on this show for the next four or five weeks. I think it's the most fun time of year for baseball. You know, I'm a, I've always been a transaction guy, and um, the trade deadline is awesome. So we're, we'll get into that plenty. But there's two controversies that happened on Sunday around baseball that have really dominated Twitter. I know you've been tweeting about them a lot. One involves the Red Sox. One doesn't. We'll get into both of them. First, I want to talk about what happened with the Mets. Obviously, it's a Red Sox show, but this is a really interesting topic that it's every, everybody's talking about in baseball. It's rare that something like that happens. To refresh everybody, Tim Healy, who uh, writes for Newsday, covers the Mets. He used to be a Boston guy. I forget his exact title. I know he was a WEEI.com intern. I think he went to BU, but he was definitely around here uh, for the, at least the early parts of his career. He uh, now covers the Mets for Newsday. During uh, After Sunday's game in Chicago, the Mets <laughs> reporters were gathered with the manager, Mickey Calloway, talking about the loss and, and some certain bullpen decisions he made. And uh, I guess things get a little bit heated in the room and a little bit heated in the media session, which, you know, after a loss on a Sunday, is not, you know, the end of the world. Mickey Calloway then walks out of that media session. Tim Healy says to him, all right, we'll see you tomorrow, Mickey. And he explodes, screaming at him, swearing at him, you know, and, and seeming to walk away, coming back for more, more of a blow up. Um, and then Jason Vargas tells him that he'll knock him the bleep out bro which the bro is a very funny addition on to, to that um he had to be restrained by a couple teammates and Noah Syndergaard and Carlos Gomez and this has been kind of an incident that's blown up multiple press conferences yesterday Mickey Calloway at first came out talked about the incident didn't apologize went back in his office I guess he probably said to the PR staff how did I do and he said actually we gotta try this again and had to go out and apologize Jason Vargas had a really weird statement 25 seconds where he just said um, it was an unfortunate incident. Thank you guys for coming to talk to me. We'll see you after the game. Didn't apologize. So really no, uh, no issue there from him. Apparently no, no sorry, which I think was weird. And, uh, it's the latest chapter in what's been, you know, an increasingly ugly tenure for Callaway with the Mets. But, you know, this is something that we've seen here. We've seen David Price blow up at Dennis Eckersley. We didn't see that, we, we, but some people, and in, including most people on the beat before my time there saw David Price blow up at Evan Drellick and, just want to get your thoughts on this. This is kind of something that is happening, you know, and, and uh, do players have the right, do managers have the right to do that to us as beat reporters, to blow up at us? Obviously, getting physical, I think, is, is never an option, but expressing that frustration publicly, you think it's something that um, should be part of it or it's something that should be handled kind of in a more quiet, private matter? Yeah, I think it's, you know, there's a way of doing it more professionally. Uh, you know, you, you talk to somebody, you know, I didn't like this written and, um, you know, you go from there. 
uh, you know, and you talk it out. I know that, you know, there's um, several times that, you know, a guy like Mike Waters from Syracuse.com, you know, is, is ticked off, uh, you know, um, Jim Beheim or, or not ticked him off, but they've had several issues. And from what I've heard, they've talked about it, you know, in his office and behind closed doors and ty- things and just, you know, patched it up, um, you know, and, and so, you know, it just looks totally unprofessional for people to blow up at the media. You know, they're trying to do their job. Uh, the media is trying to do their job. They're, you know, they don't want to fight. They don't want, you know, to feel uncomfortable in the clubhouse when they go in because, it, you know, I mean, with with Tim's situation, if Vargas is going after him, if if the manager is going after him, Callaway, and that's going to turn the rest of the team off to him, even though they don't completely understand the situation. Um, there's, you know, effects on him getting sources within the players of that team because they're obviously going to take Vargas' side. They're going to take, um, you know, they're going to take Callaway's side. And, and you know, when it was nothing at all, you know, I mean, the, the COO of the Mets, you know, contacted him and apologized, you know, for that behavior yep. of, of the, you know, of the manager and Vargas. So, um, you know, I think that it, it – Things should be, you know, sometimes things get heated. I think a lot of times things aren't reported as much as, uh, you know, I think that Evan Drellick had interesting things on, on, you know, the athletic about that, you know, like a lot of this stuff, you know, you're not supposed to talk about it when you're a beat writer, if you get right. blown out bad. And it's funny because I haven't seen Tim Healy uh, tweet in the last day or two. Yep. And so where's he, you know, I mean, I, he did talk about it on the, you know, in, to Evan, and he also talked about it in Newsday to one of their reporters. Um, but you know, I mean, it's no one's talking. He's not. He's not even tweeting right now. And so <clears throat> you're kind of forced to do that as a beat reporter. And is it right? You know, just kind of shut it down and let things cool off and not to say anything at all. And uh, you know, and I'll tell you with the Callaway situation. I mean, that I think the Mets should have come right out and you know cut ties with them there because it was a perfect 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 opportunity for something that i think feels inevitable anyway and i think everybody agrees about that yeah i mean you know you look at tim Britton, who works for the athletic now covering the mets and you know he worked at the providence journal covering the red sox from i think it was 2011 to you know 2017 or you know through 2017 and he's one of the most thoughtful reporters he's not looking for hot takes he's not looking to you know rip people he's very thoughtful he knows the game well and he wrote a month ago that Callaway should you know they should fire Callaway then and like I was very surprised to see that from Tim but I was like you know he's thoughtful this is you know that that shows me right there that things just aren't working and you know it was the perfect time and they decided to you know continue it with him and Vargas just a you know a completely weird statement on his part you know and and um and so, yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's not a good thing when there's clashes like that and they should be, uh, you know, uh, players should <clears throat> not not put things out publicly like that in the clubhouse. They should just take care of it, you know, call the uh, state of the media relations person. Can I talk to this guy, you know, behind, you know, for a minute and, you know, get get his side on this story or something? Because, you know, it's, it's just not a good thing when other players see it. They have no information. And then, you know, the 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 reporter's going to struggle with the rest of the team the rest of the year. 
Yeah, and I thought what Evan wrote yesterday for the Athletic was interesting talking about, you know, the first rule of beat reporting is to not talk about beat reporting and not talk about kind of what things are actually like in there. And the analogy that he used of the reporters are going in as beggars, you know, with the players, and occasionally the players will toss you spare change and give you something, and but it's kind of a hassle all the time. Um, yeah. I don't know how long that has been, but at least, you know, my – my full year now on the clubhouse and the clubhouse is not a long time by any means. So, um, but it's always kind of that feeling of, you know, it's, you feel like you're asking for a lot, even though you're really not, even though it's part of the CBA, it's part of the job to get, you know, two or three minutes of quotes from a guy when they're sitting at their locker doing nothing. Anyway, you feel like, okay, either I only have so many bullets to use or, you know, I, I need to make sure that these questions are going to be good ones so I don't get, you know, a death glare. And, you know, the guys that like talking and the guys that don't like talking in the clubhouse, or at least the guys that are professional and unrespectful and understand. Um, and when things like this happen with Jason Vargas and, and Tim Healy and an incident like that, it kind of shows you, you know, how a, a locker room or a clubhouse can become toxic in a second. You know, there's guys who are tight with Jason Vargas and that Mets clubhouse who are never going to talk to Tim Healy or, or, you know, not talk to Newsday, it's going to impact their coverage, you know, uh, negatively. So um, hopefully that's not the case. The reality is it probably is, you know, there's, there's things that we've seen in the past that have obviously changed the way people cover the team. I think there's, it's fair to say, and I wasn't here then. And, and, you know, I, I obviously, as much as I give him crap at any chance I get, I think Evan Drellick you know, the way he covered David Price in the back of his head had to change after that incident. I mean, if someone is like that to you, there's there's no way a person can handle that and not subconsciously be a little bit different. I know it's probably the same kind of thing. And this is a good segue that Dennis Eckersley probably has a lot of trouble, you know, with David Price. I don't think the two have spoken since the incident on the plane two years ago. And, uh, you know, obviously he's not going out there and, and talking negatively about him during every start. He's praising him and talking about him kind of from a professional pitching standpoint. But in the back of his mind, there's no way that he's, you know, going to be able to be objective. I think that that's, that's just the way it is. We look, you know, you try to give all these guys a clean slate. But at the end of the day, you know, you see Hall of Fame voters and MVP voters sometimes vote based on how guys treated them during their careers. That's kind of the level it is. And um, as, as obviously that's not the point of the voting, but, it's common human decency and stuff like that. And, and when reporters don't get that, I think there's obviously um, a piece that, that that it always sticks with you. So I haven't had that necessarily happen to me on a large scale yet. Obviously, uh, Tim Haley did this weekend. Back to the uh, mentioning Eckersley there. The other kind of, at least around here, was a little bit big, but nobody really noticed it because Mickey Calloway and Jason Vargas took all the attention on Sunday. But Dennis Eckersley in another little tiff. Um, this one was with Marcus Stroman, the Blue Jays starter. Second time Stroman has been in and had an issue with a red, member of the Red Sox, I guess, organization so far this year. There's that little thing with Alex Cora last month in Toronto. Marcus Stroman strike, struck out Eduardo Nunez in the sixth inning, let out a, a really loud yell. Um, I wasn't there. Chris, did you hear that from the press box? Could you hear his scream? No. Okay. Well, but- people said... I don't know. It was yeah. it was all over all over Twitter. Anyway, let out a scream. Looked toward the Red Sox dugout. Dennis Eckersley and Jerry Remy were talking about it in the inning after, and um, Eckersley said that you know it was tired. So um, that was kind of the comment that set him off. Stroman, as I've written about, called him on Twitter a clown. 
a hypocrite and said his comments were always trash. Eckersley responded yesterday. There's a lot about this on Mass Live um, right now. Eckersley responded yesterday saying, I get his criticism because Eckersley was obviously someone who was demonstrative and celebrated during his career. Um, and he said, I get where he's coming from, calling me a hypocrite, but there are different times for different celebrations. Eckersley said, I would fist bump basically in the ninth inning if I get a high leverage strikeout. Up, up five or six runs in the sixth inning, striking out Eduardo Nunez might not be the time. Uh, Eckersley said, I didn't like what he did yesterday, and yesterday he was tired. Um, so obviously there's a lot to unpack here. I think you on Twitter sided a little bit more with Stroman um, and said that you know Eckersley's comments were a bit hypocritical. Yeah, I mean, they're hypocritical because, you know, I mean, Eckersley got under the skin of a lot of opponents. But, you know, I don't think that he should have tweeted out that he's a clown and that, you know, um, what else? He said that his his comments are trash. Commentary is always trash. Yes, always trash. And I I know you have a theory or, or at least a thought on what might have informed that opinion, right? Well, I mean, I think that um, from what I'm told is, is that, I mean, obviously, David Price and, and Marcus Stroman are tight. Um, I know that, um, you know, when David you know, had his first son and everything and he came down and showed, you know, the baby to a few of his ex-teammates in uh, Toronto. I think it was Kevin Pillar was there. And uh, I know Stroman was one. I know they're tight. I know that, um, <clears throat> I know that, um, you know, overall, he was a me- uh, David Price was a mentor to him in the you know half a, half a season that David was in Toronto and they stayed close. And you know, um, yep. Stroman gives as much praise to Price still on Twitter, and and you know Price will say things you know that he still has a lot of praise for Stroman, so they like each other. But you know, I've heard in general that um, Red Sox players hear it from other. Uh, visiting players that they don't like the vi- other visiting players don't like Eckersley's comment, uh, you know, commenting about certain things, um, you know, and so that, you know, they come, the other players have, you know, the TV, the, the home broadcast, right. And they're in their, um, in their clubhouse and, you know, a pitcher goes up there and hears certain things and, you know, they, they, they spread the word to the Red Sox clubhouse, you know, who is this guy doing this and stuff like that. So, um, I, I know that's been the case before. So, you know, it, where he's probably siding with, you know, he's probably remembering the Price Eckersley situation, Stroman himself. And, you know, this guy always, you know, is a clown and always has trash comments. Um, I think that it's a league wide thing that, um, or I don't want to say league wide, but there's several people in the league that have come into the visitors' clubhouse, heard Eckersley's uh, commentary, and, you know, been surprised by how critical he is. Yeah, well, I think, you know, Eckersley, obviously, I think there's two pieces of that. He's obviously more candid and gives you kind of different thoughts than some other announcers. There's a lot of guys who kind of play it very straight. Eckersley's known for not just the, you know, the actionary and the vocabulary and all that stuff, but also just, you know, basically, you know, telling it like it is and then trying to be as honest and forthright. I think he thinks that he can do that because he has the cachet built up as a Hall of Famer. Not every analyst is a baseball Hall of Famer. And no, not every guy has a track record that he does. So, you know, I see that point. I and, see that, but. And like, so, I mean, you look at it too, and there's so many ex-athletes who haven't made the transition to being able to be critical of, you know, players because they think too much of their playing days. Like, you know, Dan Marino for so many years on CBS didn't say, you know, 
a critical word about, you know, an NFL player when he was doing broadcasts, uh, pre-game, uh, pre-game post uh, broadcasts on Sunday. Yep. Um, you know, there's, I mean, you know, you, you, you look at like, you know, Tim Wakefield and, you know, he's a really good guy. He gave me some good interviews when he, back in the day, but, um, you know, he's not back, critical back at in all. The day for Chris Smith is like 2011. Yeah. But he's not critical. Not 1945. <laughs> but he's not he's not critical. Um, and a lot of players have that have difficulty making that transition. And maybe it's a case where everybody is out of the league that he ever played with, and so um, you know there's no ex teammates, no certain people, and so he can tell it like it is. Um, and whereas there's certain people still in the league of young broadcasters, but um, you know I think that fans appreciate it. And, but I think that sometimes the players do not. Yeah. And obviously Marcus Stroman was one of those guys that didn't, you know, I think Marcus Stroman is obviously a different personality than we're used to in baseball as it's, I think there's parts of it that are refreshing as much as that is tough to say, because he obviously went to Duke and is a big Duke fan and all that kind of stuff. But um, there are parts of it that are refreshing. I do understand Eckersley's comments yesterday. There's a time and a place for those celebrations and, you know, maybe striking out, a 214 hitter or whatever Eduardo Nunez was the other day. Um, I know he had a good, good night Monday night, but, um, well, I know that, well, I, I know that a lot of people are, are, um, you know, critical of, of Stroman here because you know what he's done and, you know, the celebrations, but don't we want players to show some emotion first of all. And, um, you know, I think the the whole case is that he's a five eight guy, and that you know, I mean, you look at Pedroia when Pedroia was, uh, you know, young, and and Pedroia showed, you know, he he always had a, a cocky um, attitude about him. I don't know if I should say cocky, but you know, yeah, I mean, I guess yeah. so because he was small, and you know, and he, now, um, now he's staying at a Holiday Inn Express. So <laughs> yes, exactly. But you know what I mean, though, like. This guy was told probably his whole life, oh, you can't make it to the majors. You're too small to be a, a durable pitcher for, you know, an entire major league season. Mm-hmm. You just can't do it. And, you know, and he was probably the smallest kid in his class growing up. And he had to do something to gain that edge. And, um, you know, he's out to prove some people wrong. And I don't mind the emotion at all because of it. Yeah. And I, I think <laughs> as we head toward the trade deadline, He's a guy that's been linked to the Yankees. He's a guy from New York. He said yesterday that he'd embraced the big lights, that he'd welcome to trade to New York. I think having him in the, on the Blue Jays is a fun storyline every time he pitches against the Red Sox. Having him in the Yankees would be an incredible storyline, an incredible villain that this rivalry really hasn't had. Now that Joe Kelly and Tyler Austin are both out of the division, we need some new life into that rivalry. That rivalry will be renewed this weekend in London. Um it's a very interesting week, very different week for the Red Sox. They're going to finish up with the White Sox Wednesday afternoon at 1. They're going to fly to London where they will meet WBZ legend Johnny Miller, who's already there. Um, and then yeah. they're going to have two days off. Thursday is just an off day. Friday is media day. Saturday, game one, will be at 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern. Sunday will be the game at 10 o'clock. The Red Sox are scheduled to start Rick Porcello and Eduardo Rodriguez in those two games. Um, it seems like... You know, as as much has been kind of made about this and how weird this is going to be, I think the greatest takeaway for me when I look at this London series is the stretch that the Red Sox are about to go on of, you know, we talked about a lot about that 11 games to start the season on the West Coast and not sleeping in their own bed, you know, going from Fort Myers to Mesa to play the Cubs to Seattle to Oakland to Arizona. I think this stretch is 
especially in the middle of a long season, it's, it's it might be even tougher. After London, they go they have an off day, play three games in Toronto, three games in Detroit, and then the All-Star break where at least the coaching staff's all going to be there and a few of the players and the Red Sox will not be back at Fenway until I think it's July 12th. So that's like, I think, basically two or just over two full weeks, 16, 17 days without a home game. And that's probably the longest the team has gone in the middle of the season um, without a home game. And I think that that, more than anything, is kind of the effect of this London trip. Yeah, you know, I think it's a good question to ask today to, to Cora if the players are really looking forward to this trip. I was going to ask it the other day, and then I was like, yeah, he probably won't give a you know, a true answer to it, but I think I talked you down from that one. What's that? I think I told you not to ask that one. That might be why. But I might ask it today just because, you know, it is a long trip and, um, you know, the, the time change, what is it? Five hours or. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, the jet lag and then having to go to Toronto and Detroit and it's just a really long stretch. And as you said, they didn't play well you know, on the West Coast after, you know, going from Fort Myers to Arizona for a couple of pregame, uh, uh, spring training games against the Cubs. And they, you know, go to Seattle and Oakland and, um, you know, Arizona again. And so, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to do this trip if I was a player, you know, going over to London for a couple of days. I guess it's good that they get two days off, but, you know, that's two days off that they wouldn't get in another uh you know, at another time in the season that, you know, they could spend those days off relaxing at home, too. I mean, they have media days and stuff like that. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't I don't think that I, I would assume that there's players that probably aren't pleased that they're going to London. And, you know, if if um, Cora told the truth, I, I would think that he wouldn't be too happy about having to give up two home games. Yeah. And that's something that that was talked about kind of last season about how. I think he is talking when I think his quote about the schedule was it sucks in just a few different ways. Obviously, that opening stretch was tough. If you look at it, and I was looking at kind of for, for planning purposes last night. I think 12 of their last 18 games are on the road, too. And it's it's Tampa, Texas, Philly, Toronto on the road. And um, so that's there's there's some tough stretches here. It's definitely a different schedule. I think, you know, this week kind of changes things. The opening stretch was hard. Um, I think something that I haven't seen brought up by anybody that. <coughs> And we'll end with this as we were talking about the trade deadline strategy. You know, David Dombrowski, when I talked to him last week, said the strategy really hasn't been um, formulated yet. Still waiting to see where his team has gone. They were obviously hot, now a little bit colder over the weekend. But the Red Sox have probably the most, they're definitely the most important stretch of their season from July 22nd to August 4th. And listen to this they have three games at Tampa Bay. They come home for four against the Yankees and three against Tampa Bay and then go on the road for four games in New York. So that is 14 straight games against your chief division rivals right around the trade deadline. So you'll have eight, nine, nine of those games before the trade deadline where you can pick up a lot of ground. I don't. That's why I think the Red Sox trade deadline strategy, if there's any chance they'll sell, it's because the, it's because they will have lost like two of three to Tampa and three of four to New York right before then. That's like the only way I see that happening. And really for me, it's in the games, the two against the White Sox is six on the road and plus London. So eight on the road, I guess, against New York, Detroit, Toronto, and then a homestand against the Dodgers and the Blue Jays when they come back and a trip to Baltimore. That's before you face this 14 game gauntlet of, of set, six against Tampa, eight against New York kind of home and home series right around the deadline. I think that's that's tailor-made for determining your trade deadline strategy. And 
really that stretch from July 22nd to August 4th will, in my mind, really determine the Red Sox season. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that it's, it. you know, even if you want to shorten it up, just the stretch right before the All-Star break is going to determine a lot. Um, this could be a disastrous stretch. Now, they have played better on the road than they have played at home. <clears throat> but, I mean, it's not going to be easy to win two games against, uh, you know, the Yankees in London. And, you know, that trip, I mean, it's, you know, Toronto and, and Detroit aren't great teams, obviously. But, you know, after so much travel, I asked Cora when we were in Minnesota about, you know, the, it was either in Minnesota or in Baltimore about you know, how exhausted he was. Uh, during that first trip of the year in 2008 where he had to go to, you know, the Red Sox had to go to Japan and then come back and play on the West Coast and stuff like that. And, yeah, he was exhausted. And so this team can get exhausted. They, you know, they can get, you know, when your team is kind of, you know, going sideways, this probably isn't the most ideal road trip to have. But, you know, maybe it will bring the team together. You don't know that. You you know, that might you know, oh, it's a tough trip, but, you know, if they start playing well on it, it could bring them together. So we'll see. And they just announced a move. We'll end with this. No surprise. Stephen Wright was, was returned from the restricted list from a suspension. Josh Smith was optioned. <laughs> and to make room on the 40-man, Nathan Avaldi uh, goes to the 60-day injured list. I believe that doesn't have any any impact on his, his return, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd have to look how many days you can retroactive 60. I think that you can retroactive all the way down back to the first day. Right. Um, because, so you know, that, like that with the 10 be... day list, you, you the 10 day list, I think you, if a guy hasn't played in six days, I think you can only retroactive it back three days. But I think the 60, I, yeah, I no, you this can go all the way year. back. And yeah. that, that his surgery was April 23rd. So we're doing math on the fly here, folks. But uh, I think that that has no impact on Evaldi's return. So that's been Chris yeah. Smith from Mass Live. This has been uh, kind of a. A rapid-fire talk. We got into a lot of topics today, a lot of stuff going on this week, so uh, it's been interesting. We'll have a, a recap of London um, next week. Uh, I'm not sure who the guests will be yet. We're going to give Chris Smith a break um, because he will be in Toronto, I think, at that point, right? Yes, so, sir. Um, Chris Smith has stolen all the Toronto trips since, since I've been on the beat. I've still never been to Canada in my life, and that will change by the end of the year, or I'll die trying. So thank I you guys for listening. I Jen, too. So. Well, here you go. All right. And the Red Sox back in action tonight, 7 o'clock, 7-10 against the White Sox. David Price on the mound. Until next time.